Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 John chapter 5. We'll look at verses 6 through 12 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you on the next page. 1 John 5, uh, 6 through 12. So <clears throat> maybe you've heard um, of Christians giving their testimony or uh, witnessing, bearing witness, uh, telling their story about how they came to know Jesus Christ, uh, how they came to know him as their Savior, talking about their personal relationship with God through him, talking about their spiritual experience, bearing their uh, witness or testimony, giving their testimony, right? Uh, Generally, the idea behind sharing your testimony with others uh, is to persuade others of the value of knowing God, to persuade others of the value of knowing God through uh, Jesus, his son in particular, to convince others that it's uh, reasonable to trust Christ and that it's worthwhile to trust Christ. Uh, That's why we give our testimony. But did you know that God gives us his testimony? God himself gives us his testimony. That's what our passage is about. Uh, The word testimony, either in its uh, kind of a noun form or the verbal form of bearing witness, uh, giving testimony, uh, in the original language anyway, shows up ten times in this passage. It's a short passage. shows up ten times. That's what our passage is about, God giving his testimony to us. While our testimonies... uh, about God might be interesting, they might even be engaging. Um, God's testimony is something you, you have to hear. You have to hear it, and you have to wrestle with it. You have to grapple with it, come to terms with it, right? And so um, it says in verse 9 of our text, which we'll read in just a minute, that if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. That should just be common sense, right? Uh, so um, talking about God's testimony today... Let's uh, ask three questions of the text as we go through. First, what is the testimony of God? And second, how should you respond to the testimony of God? And then third, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? What is the testimony of God? How should you respond to it? And what difference does it make when you do? Um, So let's think about those questions as we go through the text. Let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we need your help as we consider your word. We're glad that you've given us your word, that you've not left us in the world without uh, a revelation about yourself, that you have given us your testimony, that it is about something in particular, uh, Christ in particular. And so we want to know you through Christ uh, as we consider your word this morning, and we pray that you would overcome the obstacles that are natural to us in our hearts and in our minds. so that we would be able to know you and see you for who you really are, who you reveal yourself to be through Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water And the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar, 
because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. This is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So first, what is the testimony of God? It says in uh, verse 9, this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. So we're talking about the Son of God. We're talking about Jesus Christ. Surprising though it may be, God wants to have a relationship with you. That may surprise you. Uh, You may think that you're entitled to that kind of thing, but uh, if you know yourself well at all, if you're honest with yourself a little bit, you realize you don't deserve to have a relationship with God. It may be surprising to you that he, the holy God, the perfect God, the true, eternal, immortal God, would want to have a relationship with you, but it is true. Uh, And so we're talking about a relationship. We're talking about a real relationship, real mutual knowledge between you and God. Therefore, um, if you're going to have a, a relationship with him, you have to know him. You have to know who he is, as he truly is, right? Uh, it's, that's the same way it is with anybody in a relationship. You can't build a relationship based on uh, your own presuppositions that don't match up with the truth about the person. You've got to know the person in order to have a relationship with them. And you can depend on God truly revealing himself as he, as he really is for a relationship with you because he's the God uh, that he is. He's the kind of God whose testimony is true. He's the kind of God who reveals himself in truth. It says in verse 6, the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. So this is talking about the third person of the Trinity. You've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, each person equally God, each person fully God. Um, So the Spirit is not, uh, no matter how instinctive it is to think of him this way. He's not a third-rate minor deity. He's truly and fully God. He, he really is God. He's the God who is, uh, and he's the one who reveals God to us. That's, uh, that's his role, if you will. Even in the Trinity, his role is to reveal God. Within the eternal relationships of the Trinity, before God made anything or anyone else to love and to reciprocate love, Uh, God, within the eternal, perfect relationships of the Trinity, uh, had had mutual knowledge, right? There was mutual knowledge between persons, perfect communion between persons. And the Spirit's role within the eternal relationships of the Trinity is to disclose the one to the other, to disclose the one to the other in fullness and in truth for the sake of love, right? When the Father gives himself to the Son... That's the Spirit. Right? So the, the Spirit is the truth. God is the self-disclosing God in and of himself because he's three persons in perfect relationship. God is the self-disclosing God. And the Spirit is the self-disclosure of this God. The Spirit doesn't just tell the truth about God. He is the truth about God for relationship, for the sake of love. Ultimate absolute truth Ultimate absolute truth, truth with a capital T, is personal and relational because God, who is truth, is personal and relational and spiritual, right? Uh, And the Spirit's testimony that it says uh, that we have here in our text, the Spirit's testimony is about the Son, and that's his role. That's the Spirit's role that we see throughout the Scriptures. In fact, the Scriptures themselves 
are the primary vehicle through which the Spirit gives testimony about the Son. The Spirit wants you to know who the Son of God is and what what kind of person he is so that you can have a relationship with God. The Spirit wants you to know that, and the Spirit's uh, uh, main primary testimony to, to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is found in the Scriptures. Throughout the Scriptures, uh, it's all uh, written, the divine author is the Spirit, and that's his role in the Scriptures, that's his role in our lives. God wants you to know, God himself wants you to know how you can know him uh, relationally. Specifically, he wants you to know something about his Son. Jesus Christ, through whom we know God, by whom we know God. It says in uh, verses 6 through 8 of our passage, this is he, talking about Jesus, who, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So that's a very confusing uh, couple of verses. Uh, it took me a while to figure out what on earth I should say about these verses. Uh, it, it's, it's a bit confusing. The water and the blood. It's not just water and blood. It's the water and the blood. And um, uh, scholars and uh, commentators trying to figure out what this passage means, they disagree to some extent about what exactly that means, but I think I'm pretty safe in uh, asserting that it's talking about uh, the water of Jesus' baptism his baptism, and the blood of his cross. Right? So the water and the blood match up with Jesus' baptism, which we find in the beginning of all the Gospels, and his death on the cross is the blood, which we find at the end of all the Gospels, or toward the end. <clears throat> and uh, these are not just historical events in the timeline of Jesus' life and death, his ministry on earth. Uh, they are historical events, but they're not only uh, kind of merely or bare historical events, they're events with theological significance, extreme theological significance for your relationship with God. Uh, Jesus' baptism and Jesus' cross testify, that's what our text says, they testify to who Jesus is, what kind of Savior he is, what kind of person he is, what he came to do in the world for our sakes. Ultimately, it says uh, his, the water and the blood testify to the fact that he is the divine human son of God whose humanity is our life. He's the divine human son of God, fully divine, fully human, and his humanity is our life. That's what uh, it means that the, the water and the blood testify to who he is. <clears throat> See, John's original audience uh, was, uh, was a church, it was a small church, probably in some particular city that uh, was plagued by the existence of false teachers, right? They had uh, false teachers who were telling the Christians, well, Jesus was fully divine, but he couldn't have been fully human. Or, Jesus was fully human, obviously, but it couldn't be like full eternal divinity, right? So they're, you know, whereas Christians have always agreed that he is fully divine, he's fully God and fully man, the heretics were landing on one side or the other without holding those two together. And that's, um, <clears throat> that was a, an attempt. Um, uh, it wasn't necessarily an attempt on their part to undermine the gospel. That was their understanding of the gospel, and it was wrong because it wasn't according to the true testimony about Jesus Christ. He is fully divine and fully human. We need to hold those things together. The testimony that we receive in the scriptures that we see in the water and the blood of his baptism is that Jesus Christ is the God-man, 
who was baptized for us and who died for us. And I'll explain what that means. Uh, First about his baptism, you, you might not think too much about Jesus' baptism. It may not be something that when you're reading through the scriptures, you're reading through the gospels at the beginning of each gospel, every time you read it, whatever, uh, you're thinking, wow, that's amazing. That's profound. Uh, he was baptized. Uh, it may not be something you've really wrestled with or thought through. It may, may not seem to have much uh, significance for your life, but it is not superfluous. Jesus' baptism, the beginning of the gospels, um, beginning of his, his ministry when he's about 30 years old, his baptism is not superfluous at all. It is critical for us. The baptism of Jesus Christ was central to the purpose of the incarnation. The incarnation is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, coming into the world and becoming a human being. And he became a human being uh, and lived among us as one of us in order to identify himself with us. In order to, uh, to reconstitute humanity in himself. We've messed it up from the beginning. We've messed up the human thing, being a human. And he came to do it right and to set us right with God as humans made right in relationship with God. He came to reconstitute humanity himself. He came to be a savior, the kind of savior who would substitute his life for us, who would do what we were supposed to do and uh, live the life we were supposed to live, right? He's the, he's the kind of Savior that is a substitute for those who are spiritually united to him, and that's what uh, is pictured, and that's what takes place in his baptism for us. In his baptism, he pledged solidarity with us in our spiritual state, and our spiritual state is a fallen one. It's one in which we are dead in our, in our sins, right? We are separated from God. We don't have a relationship with God, We've broken everything between us and God. We've broken the world because of our rebellion. And Jesus Christ looked at us. He came into the world as one of us. who He never sinned, but he pledged himself to sinners to be able to stand on our behalf. And that's what he did in his baptism. In his baptism, he pledged solidarity with us in our sinful state. Uh, he received John's baptism, which is said in the scriptures to be one of, of forgiveness of sins. Right? John was baptizing in the wilderness for the forgiveness of sins. He had no need of that for himself. He did not sin. He enjoyed perfect communion with his father. He was fully obedient to his father in heaven. So he had no need for the forgiveness of sins, so he didn't need to be baptized for his own sake. He did it in order, it says, to fulfill all righteousness. He was not baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. He was baptized so that he could act as our substitute to gain the forgiveness of our sins. In the baptism, which, uh, which even in our baptism now, our understanding of baptism is, is one by which we enter into a community with each other. By one, uh, baptism is a sacrament by which we um, enter into solidarity with each other and union with God and with each other, that, that we stand together as, as the body of Christ uh, together. So it's a, it's a sacrament of union, and he was baptized so that he could be united to us, so that he could secure our forgiveness. Uh, in his baptism, he was saying to broken sinners like us, uh, he was saying, we are in this together, you and I, and I'm going to live for you, and I'm going to die for you in union with you. That's what he was saying in his baptism. He took up our cause to save us from ourselves, to save us from uh, what we have achieved in our rebellion against God. 
to save us from ourselves, to heal us with his own life. That's why he was baptized for us. That's what the water means in our passage. And after he did that, after he was baptized for us, he came to John, he was baptized in the Jordan, the heavens opened, the Spirit descended on him. It's the first picture that you see of uh, the Trinity really clearly in the Scriptures. The Spirit descended and the Father said, This, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Um, So God the Father declared God the Son, who is at this point the God-man, the God-man who will never cease to be both God and man forever. God declared him to be his beloved Son after he had pledged his solidarity with you, after he had entered into union with you through his baptism. And so, by extension, God is declaring him to be his beloved son. By extension, he's declaring all of you to be his beloved children through your union with him. Jesus is the one who was reconstituting our humanity in right relationship with God, restoring us to sonship, restoring us to mutual knowledge, real relationship with God. Irenaeus said, he was a second century uh, church father and uh, apologist, which meant uh, he, he wrote to defend the faith, um, says that he became what we are in order to enable us to become what he is, right? to have the relationship that he has with the Father. He came and he pledged himself to us. Uh, he became a man and he, he took on our fallen humanity to himself in his baptism in the water. And Gregory Nazianzen said, uh, he's a fourth century theologian, said that what has not been assumed by Christ, what has not been taken, what has not been assumed by Christ, uh, cannot be restored. It is what is united with God that is saved. So if there was any part of our humanity that Jesus Christ didn't take to himself in order to set it right, whether it be our mind or our spirit or our bodies, our wills, whatever, if there's any part of us that Jesus didn't take to himself in order to redeem it, to reconstitute humanity into the true image of God, if there was any part that was left of our humanity that was left outside of that uh, purpose and that plan and that action on his behalf, then uh, we would be lost. But he took all of our humanity to himself, even our brokenness, even our sinfulness. He took it on himself. In order uh, to save us, he needed to be fully God, he needed to be fully human, and he needed to be united with us. He had to be able to live for us and to die for us, which is summed up there uh, with the blood. Right? His death is summed up with the word, the blood, that testifies to him. Um, at the cross, he gave his life. He gave his life to the utter end. He gave it to God. He purified humanity from sin because he lived a sinless life. He never dabbled in sin. He never gave in to temptation. He lived a sinless life from, from his first breath to his last breath. And the judgment that was coming our way, he owned it as his own, because he had united himself to us. He owned the judgment that was coming our way, even though he didn't deserve it. He took it on himself, and he suffered it for us in our place. That's the kind of Savior that he is. It says the Scriptures testify concerning the Son. This is who he is, and this is what he's done. This is the kind of Savior you have. And we sing uh, in a song called How Deep the Father's Love for Us about this. We say, how great the pain of searing loss The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. So we deserve to have the father turn his face away from us for our rebellion against him. 
But instead, Jesus, who did not deserve that, who deserved uh, the Father's smile only and always and forever, he deserved perfect uh, communion with God. He entered into our place, and God looked away from his son as he suffered and died on the cross and shed his blood, even to the last drop of his very life, um, so that he could bring many sons to glory. And that's us, right? Um, J.B. Torrance says in a book called Worship, Communion, and uh, Community, and the Triune God of Grace, <clears throat> when Jesus saw the people going down into the river to be baptized by John, confessing their sins, submitting to the verdict of guilty, Jesus said to John, baptize me, I will submit to the verdict of guilty for them. He identified himself with sinners so that he might take their place as their substitute under the judgment of God. His death was our death, his burial our burial, his resurrection our resurrection. This is, this is Jesus Christ of whom we're speaking. He came not just by the water, but by the water and the blood. That's who we're talking about. And, and John Stott says, um, you've got to hold all this together. It, um, he says, all who deny the incarnation, all who deny that Jesus Christ was the God-man who united himself to us for our salvation, to be our Savior, all who deny that, deny that he came by the water and the blood. And this is no trivial error. It undermines the foundations of the Christian faith, and it robs us of the salvation that we have in Christ. He reconstituted our humanity in himself. He restored us to right relationships uh, with God through, uh, through the water and through the blood by being the kind of Savior that he is. So uh, that's the testimony of God. God wants you to know that. That's how you enter into a relationship with him. So how should you respond to the testimony of God? Second question that we have. Um, it's pretty simple, really. Um, we should receive the testimony of God for what it is. We should take it for what it is. Take it at face value. Right? Um, it says in verse, uh, verses 9 and 10 of our text, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his Son. You should believe God, because at great cost to himself, God gave his son for you. He gave his life for your life in order to redeem you and restore you to a relationship with himself in his son. Right? He is God. He knows what's good for you. He knows better than you do how your relationship with him is to be restored. He knows what you need, and he says that he has provided what you need in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He's provided everything that you need for your relationship to be made right with him. He gives his testimony about his son, and he wants you to believe it. And either you do or you don't. I mean, that's the clear meaning of the passage. Either you do or you don't. There's no neutral third option, right? You believe God, you believe his testimony, you believe in his son, or you don't. Um, if you are ill and your doctor is a, is a world-renowned expert in his field, and he gives you a clear diagnosis of your illness. It falls within his field perfectly. Gives you a clear diagnosis and prescribes a precise treatment regimen for you. Then you can either be suspicious of him 
calling his integrity into question, or you can trust what he knows uh, that it's best for you, that he knows what's best for you, and you can respond accordingly. And it's likewise with God, who is omniscient, who is the God of relationships because he is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one being, enjoying perfect communion forever. He is about relationships in his essence. He's omniscient, he's personal, he's relational, he knows what relationships are about, and he knows exactly what you need in order to have a relationship with him, in order to know him. You can trust his word because he's an expert, or, um, or you can distrust him, and essentially that means calling him a liar, calling his integrity into question. But you've got every reason to trust him. You've got every reason to believe God, God's testimony concerning his son. Sure, his testimony, it assumes, it, in, it includes the accusation that you are a sinner that you've messed up your life, you've messed up your relationship between yourself and God. It, it has that assumption, right? It includes that accusation. And no one likes to be reminded of that reality. Right? But, um, but his testimony, even though it includes that, even though it pre- presupposes your sinfulness, his testimony ultimately is about his grace. Ultimately, it's about his grace, right? He gave his son for you, even though you are who you are. He did this. He went to this length. He sent his son Jesus to go through this in order to reconcile you to himself. His intentions are good. His motives are clear. His love is never ending. His provision for your salvation is absolutely trustworthy. And you receive his testimony then about his son by believing in his son, by entrusting your life to him by uh, finding your life in him. You stop trying to manage your existence apart from him in your rebellion. You stop trying to do that, and you submit yourself to him, and you allow him to tell you the terms of your relationship. That If you're going to be restored to relationship with him, you're going to do it on his terms. You say, okay, I believe that's going to be good, right? And that's how you... uh, that's how you should respond to the testimony of God concerning his son. Uh, third, finally, what, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? Um, I was uh, kind of wringing my hands on Friday midday because I was looking at this passage thinking, like, what application does this have? How does this relate to people in their regular lives? I was uh, talking to a guy down the hall from me and begging for ideas. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> um, it makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world. Uh, every moment of every day, it's, it makes a difference, receiving God's testimony about his son. And first, let me say this. What difference does it make? <clears throat> uh, all reality is about relationships, because the God who is behind all reality, the God who is reality with a capital R, who is truth with a capital T, that God is a God of relationships. And since that is true, however you are responding to God's testimony concerning his son... You should talk to somebody about it. You should talk to somebody about it. Talk to somebody in the church. Talk to me. I'd love it if you came and talked to me about how you are responding to God's testimony concerning his son. Uh, It's a relational thing, so we need to have uh, each other, we need to be in each other's lives, helping each other relationally to to know about our relationship with God. So uh, that's the first thing I wanted to say, the difference that it makes. But um, believing in Christ, um, in God's testimony about him, it makes all the difference in the world. Because at its root, at its root, 
Uh, Believing in God's testimony is fundamentally a new approach to life. It's a new approach to all of life. Uh, And it's, it's a foreign approach to our nature as sinners because in our nature as sinners, we're trying to get life for ourselves because our relationship with God is broken. We've got to do it on our own. That means we've got to gut it out. We've got to muscle it out. Uh, If we're going to have things like joy and peace, uh, we've got to find those for ourselves. We've got to deceive ourselves into thinking we've got those things because of our own merits. We've got to achieve those things through our own uh, work and our service to idols, false gods, right? We've uh, we've got to take care of it on our own because we are on our own. If you're apart from Christ, you're on your own. And so life is in your hands. And... um, how are you doing with that if you're, if you're apart from Christ? But at its root, believing in Christ is a fundamentally different approach to life entirely, absolutely different. It says in verses 11 and 12, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has the life. Uh, you may... You're reading the translation there, it doesn't say the life. It really does say the life. It's a particular life. Whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And um, the key little word here that I want to focus on is the word has. Whoever has the Son has the life. Present tense. You have. God has given already the eternal life. If you've put your faith in Christ, if you've put your weight on God's testimony concerning his son, you've given up your way of pursuing life and trying to achieve it for yourself, and you've put your trust, you believe God's testimony that he's giving it to you freely as a gift of his grace through Jesus Christ, you've put your weight on that testimony, then then you have eternal life now, presently. And it's a different kind of life entirely. We've talked about this a few times, uh, especially in our um, survey of, uh, of John's letter here, the, f- the first epistle of John. Eternal life doesn't mean future life that you haven't achieved yet, but it, it's coming, you know, it's in the future, and it'll never end. Right? That's kind of our standard conception of what eternal life means. Um, it includes the concept of life that will never end. Uh, it, it includes something that you will start to experience more fully, perfectly in, um, in heaven, that you don't experience it now uh, the same way. It'll go on forever. But um, Smalley, who's a commentator on this passage, says that eternal life is qualitative, not quantitative. Eternal life is qualitative, not quantitative. It is the highest kind of spiritual life which God enables the believer to share in relationship with Jesus. It's, it's talking about a kind of life. When it says that God has given you eternal life and you have that life if you have the Son, it's talking about a kind of life, uh, not just a duration of life. And Jesus says the same thing when he, he gives a definition to it. In John 17, verse 3, he says, uh, he's praying to his Father. He says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. It equals knowing God through Jesus Christ. That's what eternal life is. That's the kind of life. It's a kind of life, not a length of life. It includes the concept of length. It's not going to end, right? You will live forever in God's presence, but you have that now. The word eternal 
it just has that connotation in our minds. Everybody, you know, kind of in English, it just means eternal, whatever. The, the Greek word that it's translating there is of the age, and it really means it's, it's the life of the age that is to come, and it's an age that's already broken into this world. You already possess the life of the age to come. You already have that kind of life, and that kind of life is characterized chiefly as life that is lived in right relationship with God. That's what it means to have eternal life, to have right relationship with God. It says in verse 11, this life is in his son. It's in his son. And it, uh, Paul says something similar in Colossians 3. Uh, he says that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is something we uh, confess together uh, frequently when you say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed during our confession of uh, faith <clears throat> before coming to the table. That Christ, he died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of God. And it says in Colossians 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden. It is secured there in heaven, untouchable. Uh, You cannot threaten it. It's hidden with Christ in God. So Christ has reconstituted humanity in relationship with God. He has done it. He has perfected humanity. He has the perfect relationship with God that a human was always meant to have, that we don't have, that we need to find in Christ alone, that we can't manage for ourselves. He has gotten that relationship with God, and your life is in him, where he is, with God. Your life is in him because you are in him by union through his spirit. And that means your whole life now, your whole life now is grounded outside of yourself. Your whole life is a vicarious one. Your whole life is, is not, uh, it, it's grounded outside of yourself. Your identity, your security, your worth, your sense of righteousness and value, your hopes and dreams, everything in your life, it is not based on you as an individual. It is not based on your actions. It's not even based on your thoughts and your motives for everything that you do. Your life is not based on you. It's not grounded in you. Everything you need for life, for true relationship with God, everything you need for life is true for you because it is true of Jesus Christ, and that will never change. He is in perfect communion with the Father on your behalf. It can never change. It can never be threatened. No matter what you do, you still sin, you still rebel against God, you will never get life right in this world. But your life is not dependent on you getting it right. You have eternal life. You have been restored to a right relationship with God because that life is in his son. That life is in Jesus Christ. And when that sinks in, when that reality sinks in, that your life is grounded outside of you, uh, when, that, when that really registers with you, it changes absolutely everything in your life. Don't you think that changes everything in your life? It gives you real love for others. Instead of using them to meet your needs in order to get the love that you desperately need because you stand on your own in this world and you were made for love but you don't have it from God, and you do have it from God. You've got the perfect life in Christ, so you have real love for others. You have real willingness to actually serve them and bless them and not just use them. Not just to, not, don't, 
you know, not just loving them to get something back, right? You really can even give your life away in the service of others. You can really love them. You can have real joy because your life is hidden with Christ in God, something that uh, you can't even mess it up if you tried. Uh, your sin, your rebellion against God is not the ground for your life. Christ in his perfection and his humanity is the ground for your life, and that gives you a real joy that can sustain you even through dark, dark times. Um, it gives you a real peace that's not dependent on your circumstances. Uh, Tim Keller has a book on prayer. I haven't read it, but I've read some quotes from it. It came out recently. Uh, there's a lot of buzz going on about it. Sounds like it's a great book. Probably should go get it and read it. His book on prayer, uh, where he says, it's amazing that in all of Paul's recorded prayers in the New Testament, in fact, maybe even in all the prayers recorded in the New Testament, not one of them asks for a change in our circumstances. Not one of them asks for a change in the circumstances of God's people. It asks for a change inside of us, right, to be able to meet any kind of circumstances. And if you know that your life is in the sun, then you can have a real peace that just doesn't make any sense with regard to the circumstances of your life. It only makes sense because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, you can have real patience with others. You can have real kindness. Uh, be, be really kind toward others. The other fruit of the Spirit, who's the one who dwells in you. Um, you can have something. Uh, knowing this gospel, it gives you something beautiful and astonishing and surprising and comforting to talk about with other people. Give you something meaningful to talk about with other people. It changes the way that you approach God in prayer. When you, when you think of prayer, you don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to feel afraid. You can have real confidence because you know that the basis, the foundation for your relationship in prayer is not grounded in yourself. It's grounded in the perfection of Christ's humanity. And he's in God's presence for you right now, uh, interceding on your behalf. It changes the way that you think about repentance. Repentance shouldn't be a maudlin thing. It shouldn't necessarily be a painful thing to change the direction of your life, to stop pursuing false gods when they, prom they make empty promises and you give your life to these things in order to scratch a life, scratch a, an existence out of the ground for yourself, to turn to the one true God who has fully uh, given you life in the person of his Son, your repentance can be a joyful thing. What a joyful thing to, to turn your gaze from idols, from dead idols, to the true and living God who loves you. Jack Miller says that uh, our repenting should be as, as daily and as delightful as our eating. Grace gives us that kind of joy. Um, it changes your relationships. It changes your marriages, your parenting, uh, your work relationships, uh, turns everything upside down. You don't have to jockey for position at work. You don't have to try to get power for yourself. You can give away power. You can give away authority. You can give away yourself in service to the people around you. Even though they have no clue why you're doing it, what you're doing, you can serve people around you. It changes your relationships, uh, knowing that your life is not built on what you can get for yourself, but it's built on Christ, and it's hidden in Christ changes how you spend your money, how you endure hardships, how you suffer, how you realize that uh, the things around you are, um, the circumstances in your life are temporary and they're not a statement of God's ill will towards you when you're suffering. 
because you know God loves you, because your life is hidden with Christ in God. Um, it changes how you face temptation, how you face depression, how you deal with embarrassment or shame or guilt or just being self-conscious. Right? You don't have to be self-conscious. You don't even have to think about yourself anymore. You can think about Christ because your life is in him. It's not grounded in you. It, can, it changes how you stand in the grocery checkout line. Knowing this gospel, when this registers with you, it changes the way you meet new people. It changes everything. It's a totally new way of living. And if you don't trust God's testimony about his son, about how to have a real relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ, if you don't trust that testimony, if you don't have the son, the text says you don't have the life. You don't know what it means to live life in this kind of relationship. And that's not, I'm not trying to be condemning by saying that. That's just stating a fact. If your life isn't grounded outside of yourself in the, in the person and work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, in his humanity perfected for you, if your life isn't grounded on that, it means you have to get it for yourself, and there's no peace in that. There's no rest in that. There's no joy for that, in that. There's no love in that. Right? So... Put your faith in Christ and enjoy the eternal life that is given to you. It is yours, and it's only found in the Son in, in whom your life is. Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, what a truth. We want to latch on uh, to this truth throughout our days. We want our minds to be fixed on your Son so that where he is seated at your right hand, we would have our minds set on him and the life that is in him. We want our hearts to be renewed by the joy and the peace and the love that come from knowing that uh, our life is not based on who we are or what we've done in this world, but it's based on him, who he is, the perfect God-man in union with us, who gave himself to the point of death for us and who lives forever for us. We pray that Christ would be large in our hearts and in our minds uh, throughout our days, but especially now as we uh, approach the table, the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.